Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. This is Asia Tech Podcast on a Tuesday evening broadcasting from Tokyo and Bangkok. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the studio as ever by Michael Waits. Michael, good evening to you. Good evening. We're home, aren't we? Are we home? Sometimes I wake <laughs> up in the middle of the night wondering where I am. You get that feeling when you cross time zones. It's been that way over the past, what, three weeks, right? Yeah, it's a little bit of a blur, but it's settling in now. We've had quite a hard schedule the last three weeks. We did Fukuoka, Tokyo, Shanghai, and obviously back to Bangkok for you. Yeah, and then back to Tokyo for you. I mean, I think it's part of what we decided we were going to do a few weeks ago or a few months ago. Yeah. And sort of travel around the region and try to figure out where's good, where's bad, and you know what the startup scenes look like. And I think this is there's a long vision here, I think, for doing this, no? Yeah, yeah, that's what we want to talk about tonight, our vision and why we're doing this and what the big picture is with the whole I mean, you know, Asia Tech Podcast really is about the Asian tech ecosystem. And I guess you you've been in this ecosystem longer than I have, Michael. I guess there is a challenge which is access to information and also the information there is is quite new so you know even if you take a, a city like Singapore the startup scene even though it seems to be so well developed there is, is very new in the grand scale of things right it's only sort of four or five years old you, know, right. you compare it to say the valley which is you know generations old now right so this presents yeah. a challenge doesn't it for anybody yep. looking at this sector or this map <laughs> yeah, and you look, you make a really good point. And, you know, yesterday I was talking to um, Bernard Long about this, right? Talking about the tech ecosystem in Thailand in particular, but in all of Southeast Asia in general. And, and you know, one of the themes that arose yesterday was it's still early. Yeah. It really is early. And one of the things that's missing, you know, we, there are whole businesses built around globally around. You know, is Paris a great place for a startup? Is Boston a great place for a startup? Is New York the better place? Like, where is it? How does Manila work? Is Cebu a good place, right? Do you want to be a geek on a beach? Like, how do you know where the right place is? And I think if you look at Silicon Valley, it's pretty well established. But to be fair, you know, Silicon Valley itself has always been a neat place to, to do a startup business all the way back to, you know, Intel and Apple and right. Cisco, all these companies. But, you know, before that, you know, Boston, there was the, you know, the information superhighway, which was, you know, Route 128 in Boston. The question is, like, all these things that seem like they're established and done and there's no other place to do it, mm. and particularly in Asia, I just think it's it, it's a myopic way to think about it, right? Right. Exactly. So the, question, so the question is, how do you determine what's right for you, particularly if you're not in your home city, and frankly, even if you are? Like, what do you consider? What do you think about when you're looking at a city and thinking, should I start in Berlin? Should I start in Chiang Mai? Should I go to Bali? Should I be in Bangkok? Right. So what are the things that people think about? I mean, you know, even let, let's just start with this. You think about Tokyo, right? Tokyo is a big city. It's got 12, 15, maybe 18 million people in metropolitan Tokyo. It feels like it would be the greatest place in the world for a startup. It's Japan. It's highly technologized. There's Akihabara. So there's this whole geek and otaku community there. Yep. And, yet, and yet for all the things that make Tokyo a great city, it's not a great place for a startup. Exactly. And that's not obvious, is it? Because the obvious no, choice is Tokyo. Yeah, but it's not obvious. And, and I think the, the reason why we talk about this a lot is trying to make it clear or more clear for people 
and maybe more obvious for people where it is a great place right. to run a business. You know, at its core, a startup is really just a business, right? And Shopping for a city, really, isn't it? I mean, if you went out and said, right, if I could set this business up anywhere in Asia, where would I do it? You know, yeah, and it depends what you want that business to Exactly. There's certain criteria, isn't it? And it's different for everybody. Not everywhere. Not everyone's going to gravitate to the same city because their reasons are going to be different, right? Yeah, I mean, so like you'd be shocked, right? But like inter- I bet internet speeds in Bangkok are better than they are in Tokyo. Quite possibly, especially in public Wi-Fi, right? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this when we were in Tokyo, right? I mean, I can send you a picture, but I was testing it today. I had 300 megabits up and 400... 400, 400 megabits down. What, the public Wi-Fi? Yeah. What, in Bangkok? Yeah, at a true serious? coffee shop. Wow, that's I'm what not... that's my one gig connection to the house here in Tokyo. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing, right? That and is... that's, one of the, that's one of the criteria that I think about, right? Because, right. so I go, I go to this place called True Sphere every day, or every other day, really, right, to get some work done. And when I'm there, I run into a bunch of other people from the startup community. Right? So today I ran into some of my friends that run this thing called the AsiaStartups.com. Right? And they do, you know, they're meant to be sort of an accumulation of people that invest in startups, but they also want to provide services to startups as, as a platform. And, you know, good guys. Charlie um, was there um, and, you know, the, the other CEO was there as well. And, they're just asking them, like, what do you think about this as a place to do a startup? And they, you know, they say what we say, and that is it really just depends what you wanna what you yeah. wanna do. Okay, but why were they there? Why were they meeting in a public place as opposed to in a private office? And the real reason was it's a great place for meetings, but also the internet speed there was really fast. And I think we should probably go over a few other things as well. Like, if you're gonna pick a city, what are like the top five things that you really care about? I mean, the internet's got to be top, yeah. Right. What are, What are the main criteria? Without internet, there's no startup, really, is there? So that's that's the hygiene factor as well, I suppose. So put that one right at the top. What else? What's important for a startup? I mean, everybody talks looks at Silicon Valley and tries to quantify that, don't they? You know, in the terms of access to capital, access to talent, access to. Right. You know the networking side of things. Th- those are the three things that usually jump out when people look at a, a startup city. Right. I mean, let's run through this, though, right? So let's say I have an idea and I want to run a digital or an online business, right? And whether it's ad tech, health tech, you know, whatever it is, I need internet speeds, and I need them to not just be fast, but I need them to be consistent, right? Yep. So if it starts raining or if it starts snowing, depending on where you are, I can't have the speeds go down, right? So that that's the first thing, and I think that's table stakes, right? Because you can make an argument about like whether the cost of living matters, right? So if it's $1,200 a month or $1,500 a month to rent an apartment, it's important, but I don't think it makes a big – I don't think there's a big deal about it, right? And, and I think if, if you look at all the cities in Southeast Asia, you, know, you can say, well, is it friendly to foreigners or unfriendly to foreigners? I think that type of criteria doesn't matter so much. No, no, especially not in the startup community, right? I mean in most cities – most, I'm sure there's going to be a few outliers, but in the main metropolitan cities, right, that's not an issue. No, because can you really make a case that like friendliness to foreigners is any different in Manila than it is in Ho Chi Minh? I mean, I don't think so. I don't right. live in those places. But I've never heard someone say, oh, I would live there, but it's unfriendly to foreigners. And I think that includes language as well. I mean, yeah. 
you know, look, you and I are lucky, right? You're from the UK and I'm from the United States. We're from English-speaking countries. But I, I think language is mattering less and less because the global language of business is English. Yeah, I mean, especially if you go to a lot of startup events now, anywhere in the world, they tend to be held in English, even if yeah, all the people there aren't English speakers by, you know, by <laughs> birth, right? It's amazing. Right. It, uh, yeah, it is. And I don't think that makes, you know, I used to take a lot of flack when I lived in Japan for like, this whole concept of America is number one. And I used to say, look, it's not, it's neither my fault nor my doing that English is the language that the world uses to do business. I'm just like historically lucky, accidentally born in America. It is English. It is what it is. And the whole world is neither going to speak and I'll pick a language, Spanish, French, German, you know, Japanese, Korean. It's just not going to happen. It's the global language of business. You can make the case maybe a generation out or two generations out that that language may be Mandarin. But I mean, you know, there are a billion Chinese people in the world, but there are also a billion Indians as well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it ain't going away. No, I don't think so. I don't, and I don't, so I don't think language is, no. is a thing that really matters. And also like in, you know, in 2017, you know, the world ends up being like a really peaceful place, regardless of all the noise that you hear out there. I don't feel unsafe in any big city in the world. Do you? No. You know what I mean? Not really. No. Like we were in Shanghai and we walked, you, no. know, you and I walked, you and I took a three or four kilometer walk from one place to another place. Into to the, the back streets, we, yeah. Yeah, but we didn't know, we didn't understand yeah, yeah. and we didn't, you know, when we made that left hand turn off the bun to go down that street to, you know, yeah. past what I think is the Peace Hotel. Yeah. Did you even think about like, oh, we're walking down a dark, no, never thought about it. I didn't feel it. unsafe, no. I just never thought about it. Yeah. Right. And so, and you can talk about like the politics, you know, in a particular place. I think the politics doesn't filter down. No, no. That, that's the thing, isn't it? People say, oh, I don't want to live there because it's not a democracy. Well, you know. <laughs> when, it, when it actually, you say right at the down, at the, the grassroots level of existence on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't think you even notice. No, you know, so I, I don't think, think that matters. Life is the same, you know. I think it's just, I don't know. We go off into the political thing, but for most people, the experience is pretty much the same. There are extremes, but I think in Asia we haven't been left with many extremes, have we, really? Not really. It's pretty much much of a muchness. Yeah, and you know what? Like, you know, is it is it friendly to female founders? I think that's pretty much right. the same everywhere in the world, too. Yeah. Right? So, I, you know, these, like, little things I don't think matter so much. But here's what I do think matters. And they're, the internet sorry, they're also personal things as well. That, that's important to say, isn't it? That they're very personal interpretations. They're very diff yeah. difficult to objectify, right? Sure. Whether you say something's friendly to your type of person is usually based directly on experience, right? Personal experience. You know, you may have yeah, a I bad mean, experience, good experience, that shapes it. doesn't mean somebody else will, right? Yeah, and I mean, you can pick any place in Asia and say that they're not friendly to X kind of group of people. Yeah. And yet the reality is that Again, I don't think that's any different than anywhere else. I mean, is is you know South Carolina friendly to all types of people? Exactly. You know, again, without getting into the politics of it, but also is Los Angeles really friendly to all types? It's just the same thing everywhere, and you can make the case like, is it more misogynistic anywhere? I don't right. think so. Right. So this thing happened like in the eighties and nineties. We used to call it the boutiquing of the world. You know, where you'd wake up in Tokyo and there's a McDonald's there and a Starbucks there and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that's happening everywhere in the world. But I think the boutiquing of the world also meant that, like, 
the sort of social infrastructure of the world kind of ended up at the same place? Yeah. I, I don't know. And maybe that's just a, an exaggeration on my part, but I don't think that stuff matters. And I don't think when you're ranking exactly. a place, that, that matters. Th- those are cultural factors, aren't they? Which we can, basically what we're saying, for that kind of lifestyle, the kind of people you've got to hang around with, especially in the startup scene, these cultural factors really are, you know, difficult to choose between a very sort of individual interpretation. So not really easy to rank and not that important at the end of the day. No, they're not actually. Um, and <laughs> I think if you start getting into sort of ranking, you know, giving 25 different categories and criteria for ranking a city for whether they're good or bad for startups, yeah. I think you're walking down the wrong path. And I know people have tried to do that, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't go do that, but I think you're walking down the wrong path. Right. Anyway. What is so important what the, then? Exactly. Well, what does matter? So the internet matters. We, we established that, right? And maybe the cost of living is okay, but again, you know, is it that different? I just want to do this one more time. Is it that different in Jakarta than it is in Ho Chi Minh than it is in Bangkok? So Singapore is very expensive to live. Right, right. But then, you know, I will, you know, taking the contrarian view on this is that our experience of Fukuoka, remember, on the office space side of things, that yeah. was interesting, wasn't it? You you had a startup which had seven floors of an office, which was just, you know, incredible what they were paying for it compared to Tokyo. It was significantly less than half what they were paying for that in Fukuoka compared to what they would pay in Tokyo, right? So, yeah, cost of living, I guess, does come into it somewhere, right? Because it's burn time at the end of the day. Yeah, and it was interesting. So the guys at New Lab and, and the, the team there, right, whether it was JP or Hashimoto's on there, like, yeah, but this isn't in the central part of the city. And it kind of made me chuckle, right, because how far outside the city <laughs> is the central part of this? You know what I mean? Like in Fukuoka, it's just not that big. Well, that comes to another point we'll, we'll bring up about infrastructure, right? I mean, it was Right, so that's minutes, actually matters. Yeah, 10 minutes to the airport. Right? So, again, like how good is the infrastructure in a city is really important. Right. Exactly. So, what is it like to get in and out of the city? What is the what is it like to um, move around inside that city? What are your options? Right. So people can complain, and I, I'm not a complainer at any level, but people can complain about. So the traffic in Bangkok is really bad. Yeah. But then there are motorcycle taxis everywhere, and that disintermediates the traffic problem for me. Right. And it's not like you're riding around in a suit or you're outside for that long on any particular ride. So I do it all the time, and I never feel like when I get to a meeting, I'm you know, too sweaty or too unpresentable to make that meeting and make it, and make it um, a problem. But, so, but that, the infrastructure does matter, but the question really is, how do you handle the infrastructure? How is your adaptability? And I think that's actually going to be a key. In almost all cases, when you're deciding where to live, is how adaptable are you? Yeah. Exactly. Don't you think though? Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why going to a new place to live. I mean, this sort of shopping for a city for a place, you know, for a startup is one thing of what we're talking about. Also talking about people who live there, talking about people looking at investing and so on. But we have to remember that if you're running a business from a city, you also have to live there. And if that place is a new environment for you, well, that's a challenge in itself, isn't it? Not only are you starting a new business, but if you're in a, an environment which you're not used to, right? 
you know, if your if your home life ain't working out, your startup life ain't going to work out either. It's going to be a reflection of that, isn't it? So yeah, it doesn't matter, right? So every city has every city is going to have, and every country is going to have its own idiosyncrasies. So the idea that you know is the weather bad? I don't know. Do you look? What does what does bad weather mean? Do you right. like snow? Then you should live in Switzerland. Do you like the heat? Then you should live in Thailand. You know. And all of Asia is going to have a rainy season. So I don't think that that type of stuff matters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if they look at those, they've done those longitudinal studies, haven't they? Like in the States of best place to live in the States. I know we're sort of going off base a little bit, but no, talking no, about, you know, best place to live. And it's interesting that what people rank is what they think are the criteria for where they're going to be happiest. So they ask people, what do you want? And they always put weather at the top. Yeah. I want to, you know, I want to go and live in California because it's going to be, you know, 3000 hours of sunshine a year, et cetera, et cetera. But the interesting thing is when they track their longitudinal happiness, there's absolutely no correlation between <laughs> the weather and their happiness long-term. No. I'm fascinated by that because I always think, yeah, I want to go to a place where the weather's going to be great, you know, because I come from the UK. So it's always a right. thing at the top of our thoughts when we want to escape, right? But, you know, what actually makes you happy? And I guess this, it also sort of folds back into the whole startup thing. You want a place where the lifestyle is good, but, you know, what is that lifestyle going to be good for? And you might think, oh, the weather's going to be great, but that ain't going to affect your experience long term. Right? It's going to be other things beyond the weather that really make it you know i'm a great believer that it you know your happiness in it and success in a place ultimately will come down to the people there right and access to people yeah exactly right and that's so that's again key right so you know i grew up in boston connecticut and then spent most of my adult life in tokyo places where i would make the case that there are four seasons right there's really you know winter spring summer and fall and i'll tell you what I live in Bangkok now, and it's hot, but I don't miss snow. And if I never yeah. see like another snowflake, and I never have to shovel another sidewalk in my life, it'll be too soon. So, do you I get? Rather, do people say that that to you, Michael? That oh, you're going to miss the seasons. They all say all that, the don't they? And you're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> all the time, people are like, I want to live in a place where there are four seasons. Yeah. I'm like, I want to live in a place where there's one season. <laughs> And it's, it goes from 70 degrees to 90 degrees. That's my favorite season. And I don't care about like zero, <laughs> okay? And I don't need snow. And if I want to see fall, which can tend to be beautiful, yeah. I'll travel there. <laughs> Keep it at arm's length. On I'll tap. just take a, yeah, I'll get on a plane and I'll go see like fall. And sure, the cherry blossoms are great, right, in Tokyo in April. But, you know, the cherry blossoms to me are kind of like climbing Mount Fuji. You do it with 40,000 of your closest friends. <laughs> Have you ever done that, by the way? Up to level five, which is halfway. Oh, so, you've, so you've never climbed to the top? No. And the reason why is why? Because I live near it. So It's one of those things, isn't it? It's there. It's like, yeah, it's like the Empire State Building. You should probably go to the top, but I live in Manhattan, <laughs> and it's just never going to happen. I see it every single day. I'll put you this way. I did it twice. Oh, you did it twice? Oops. Oh, you were here long enough. Yeah, but like, so One the first for every time. Decade. <laughs> no, but you do. Here's the thing, and this is way off piece for this conversation, but like, you climb Mount Fuji the first time because you're 25 years old and all your friends are doing it. Yeah. You just moved there, and everyone's like, hey, we should climb Mount Fuji because it's there. Okay, but like, when you're doing it, all you do is you have like old Japanese ladies with those flashlights on their head every yeah. now and then they hear you speak English and they turn around, the light goes right in your eye and you're like, why am I doing this? 
<laughs> I'm not kidding. And then, and then like later, you know, you have a girlfriend and your girlfriend says to you, oh, I really want to climb Mount Fuji. And you're like, no, I promised myself I was never going to do that again. And then you're standing at a bar one night and one of your buddies walks over and goes, hey, I was thinking about climbing Mount Fuji. And your girlfriend says, you're in. And then, oh, you're in again. Anyway, that's the whole problem. Anyway, let's get back to talking about startup, <laughs> startup cities. So what matters? The internet matters. You know what else matters? I think the government support for the startup system ecosystem matters. Right. In what way? Okay. What way? Well, that's a, it's a really good question. So what way? I think we're going to talk about this like over time. Yeah. In, in what I'll call the Goldilocks way, right? So you can have too much government participation, meaning, you know, on every corner there's somebody from some ministry or some such thing saying – we're going to put money into this, and we're going to put money into that, and we're going to allocate capital for this scheme. And if you invest $20,000, we'll invest $30,000 next to you. It just skews the whole market. Right. But why, so why is that a bad thing for the individuals in that market? I mean, if, if you know, it's awash with cash, then, you know, fill your boots. Why would that be yeah. a bad thing for a startup? Well, it's a bad thing because too many companies will get funded. And too many, too many companies will get funded at the wrong valuation, right? It's like you can go to a party and have too much alcohol to drink, right? It's the same type of thing, too much cake, too much candy, too many shrimp, too much caviar. Like you can have too much of a whole bunch of stuff. Right. And anytime you put financial leverage, so that's the whole point, right? Anytime you put too much financial leverage into a system, it's bad because that's going to unnecessarily create a bubble and bubble humans will create bubbles on their own, right? Whether it's, you know, natural irrational exuberance as Greenspan said 20 years ago or more, or just people, you know, having a tulip frenzy, mm. humans will create um, bubbles. And what you don't need is the government on the sidelines cheerleading for that bubble by putting too much money in. Right? So, if you're participating, and I'll get in trouble for this, but if you're participating in an NRF scheme, right, where the National Research Foundation says, if you invest $75,000, I'll invest $475,000 next to you, then your ability to determine and manage risk is just, it's mm. skewed, right? It's skewed. What you really want is some other incentives, so tax incentives, I think, or, or you know, non-tax incentives of like, if you build a business and employ five people, you don't have to pay taxes for five years, but you do need to show revenue. So it's not just like a freebie. I don't think the government should be in the business no at any level of creating like free things for people, right? Just but it's never it free, is it? For me. No, it's never free, right? And it's Somebody definitely has to not pay. free. Yeah, yeah. Somebody pays yeah. for everything. But the idea for me is like just create an ecosystem that, that removes friction for me, right? So right. how would that work? Well, let's say the government, so Fukuoka did this, right? They said, let's have a startup visa, right? Now, why is that? Well, the reason why, that, the reason why that's necessary is because you may want to have foreign workers who may have expertise in a specific, um, in specific you know, realm, and maybe you can't hire that locally, but you don't want to be able to, you don't want to have to hire somebody and have to struggle to bring them in, Right. Yeah. So if if that's the case, then that that matters. That's the way the government can really help. So some some people may see that as the government. I suppose this is yeah semantics, but some people may see that as the government doing something like a program, like a startup visa. I know people actually have 
programs called startup visas, like the one here in Japan. A lot of one, a lot of visas aren't actually startup visas, but get termed startup visas, right? Sure. I mean, we learned that, right? Right. So that that's sort of the government doing something. I actually see that as the government getting out of the way. Agreed. Because, you know, that's where I think, and maybe it's a political thing, but I think the governments do best, especially when it comes to business. Is actually, you know, Mr. Government, if you want to really help business, get out of the way. Because business can do very well on its own. It's just, you know, where there's red tape and bureaucracy that holds things back. And visas and access to employment and talent is one area, isn't it? I mean, why can't, if this startup needs a place to start a business and it's coming from a different country, why not let it start up here? Because it will create jobs. You know, why does, you know, why should that be regulated in such a way that they can't, it's difficult for that start up to set up in this country right right so the best way is the government just get out of the way and say okay we'll make it really easy for you a really easy process like they've done in fukuoka and just let these startups come right and it's a very straightforward process by comparison to a lot of countries and especially to japan right the rest of japan right i mean historically it's been very hard um for foreigners to get visas in japan and I think in Asia in general, it's been pretty hard for foreigners to get visas. But even in Thailand, as of last month, the government has realized that they're going to get out of the way in, in the same form and just say, look, we'll give you a four-year. That's a long visa in yeah. Thailand. We'll give you a four-year startup visa or founder visa. Thailand, I, Thailand is really progressive when it comes to visas. I'm surprised. I mean, compared to all the countries in the region. I'm amazed. I mean, you know, you wonder how long it's going to last and whether it's, uh, you know, just something that somebody's trying out and they're going to say, oh, that was a mistake. But it just seems amazing what they're doing there with visas and entrepreneurship, right? Yeah, I think there's, I think the government has actually realized and they're sponsoring their own events as well. And the thing that the government has realized is that, like you said, there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. And one of the ways they're doing it is just trying to remove friction, trying to get out of the way, right? So they're supporting companies. You know, there was a story, I think it was in the middle of 2016 now, about the company, the country, sorry, excuse me, allocating over half a billion dollars to sort of the startup scene. And yet they're not really investing all that money. They're just putting programs in place like the startup visa. They're changing things. They're having events. And they're allocating a lot of resources to just sort of highlight the fact that being a startup is a good thing. Yeah. Right, and one of those things is increasing internet speeds everywhere. We talked about that earlier. That's the, those are the things that matters, right? That that matter. So, internet and the government getting out of the way is really important, and it dovetails actually with one of the other things too, right? So, what does a startup need to grow? It needs capital, hmm. right? But it's not that straightforward, right? Because we talked about it, right? Money is. A commodity, but what you need is money in the right form in the right format. Okay, and what that also means is that you have to have, and again, this gets back to a little bit of the government and regulations, is you have to have the ability to fail and not have it be fatal. Right, that's a cultural thing, though. No, I mean, especially when you think about Asia. We've talked about this before. You can you as a government get rid of generations of attitudes towards failure. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a really important point, right? So I was on the you know I was on the phone with um, the founder of Technode today. Yeah, right. Really smart guy, Gan Lu, right? Gan really smart guy. And you know we were talking about his story and the founding of Technode and how that whole thing happened. And 
you know, he has a PhD and a master's degree in mobile communications and mobile technology. This is a guy who spent his entire life, you know, excelling academically. And that is a great trait, you know, among Asian families. It really is. I mean, you get pushed really hard to excel. And yet, when you come home, can you then not go work at a multinational corporation? Can you then not go work, like, as a professor somewhere? Can you branch out and go, regardless of what the ecosystem looks like, and do a startup? Yeah. With all of those credentials. That's, that's hard, right? Mm. That's a recurring theme. If you listen to any of the ATP stories, which yep. are the, the individual stories of startup founders and what they've been through. That theme comes up time and time again, doesn't it? Especially in a, here in Asia, right? That these startup founders have faced a lot of rejection, criticism, self-doubt, starting their businesses. And I think it's it's easy to talk about that in the context of being in Silicon Valley where everybody around you has failed umpteen times already, right? But here in Asia, well, it's a big deal. It is a big deal, but it cuts both ways, right? Because... You know, a lot of the ways that some of these founding families, not just in Thailand, but in, you know, Malaysia and Vietnam, even in Japan, right? A lot of the ways that these families have become wealthy and have outperformed was by being entrepreneurs two generations ago, yeah. right? So it's really interesting that after doing that, there's a little bit of an aversion to, you know, mm -hmm. two generations on or three generations on for, you know, your grandchildren, your granddaughter and your grandson to be able to you know, go out and then be entrepreneurs as well because there's too much risk in it. And yet you come from a background where you literally like walked across the continent to get to another place to create a better opportunity for yourself and your family. But you're right, that cultural um, feeling of it's not okay to fail and it's not okay to sort of take that risk is interesting, particularly in the context of, you know, two generations ago, the only reason why your family became a success was because they took a massive risk, right? When we rank these cities, are we going to rank them on the basis of that? Because I know earlier on we talked about the cultural aspects and said, well, you know, th these are very personal things and it's an inter personal interpretation and they don't really have a bearing on the outcome of your business and your success. But this does, right? So that's kind of a different type of culture. It's the business culture, isn't it, rather than the social cultural stuff like we talked about attitudes towards you know, women or whatever, stuff like that, that tends to be unanimous across Asia. However, yeah, it does. This, would we put that as a criteria in the ranking? Say, okay, so Fukuoka, Singapore, Hong Kong, we're going to rank them according to attitudes toward failure. Where, where would you put that in? Would you bundle it in with something else? No, I think that has to be there. And I think that whether it's cultural or not, right, I think the idea is that, you know, being a female founder is hard everywhere in the world. It just is, right? And being a founder from a racial minority is just hard everywhere in the world. It's neither right. It's, it's not right, right? That's not a good thing. Yeah. But that's just going to be true everywhere in the world, okay? But you have to rank, like, this society's desire or ability to let you fail, and which does manifest itself sometimes in government policies or sort of, you know, like we talked about, the government getting out of the way or getting in the way. Right. But I do think it matters, and I think that has to be part of the ranking is, what if it doesn't work? Yeah, yeah. Because it's not just what other people think. There's also legal and financial implications as well, right? That, that's sure. another thing. So, I mean, especially if you were to start up a business in Japan and you're going to debt and fail, you may have a very different experience to say doing it in another country. 
Yeah, and there's a great look. I talk to you and I both talk to founders all the time, and I think one of the things they say to us is that, you know, when it's a three-person company, they do feel a lot of responsibility and a lot of stress. Like, what happens if I fail? Will I be embarrassed? Like all those types of things. But you know what's harder? When you're a 50-person company or a 100-person company and there's a bump in the road, right? And then how do I feed 50 to 75 people Hmm. if revenues aren't increasing as fast as I expected, if I'm not hitting my KPIs, if I can't raise my next round and yet I've expanded to three different countries? Like that is real stress and pressure. But that gets back to – and that has to be part of the ranking is – because that's part of is it okay to fail, no? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, what else? Well, capital. So access to money. And that money has to come at every single stage, right? And and again, part of this is cultural too. So like a, take a city like um, Ho Chi Minh or even Hanoi, which is kind of at the beginning of you know this whole building of an ecosystem for tech startups, right? And even in Myanmar, there's plenty of money in these countries. You can talk about GDP per capita and stuff like that, but there is capital in all these places. But the question is, is there risk capital? Right. Right? So in other words, if you can make an 8% return guaranteed by putting your money in U.S. real estate, would you do that? Mm -hmm. Or would you take that money and put it into a startup where you could potentially 10 times your money? That's an interesting prospect in a place like Hong Kong, isn't it? Yeah, for sure, because there's real estate speculators everywhere, and that's okay. And if you make money or lose money in real estate, no one's going to think you're a bad person. They'll just think, wow, you're a maverick and a risk taker. That's a great thing, right? That could actually add to your gravitas. Yeah? yeah. But if you're, a, if you're a startup or an angel investor in Hong Kong, can you invest in a startup company that just goes belly up like a year in? Yeah. What does that do to your reputation? I, I don't know. And you, you, you know, rather than invest it in a startup, you could stick it into this manufacturing output in, you know, in, in Shenzhen over the border, right? Which has been around for 10 years, that kind of thing. Producing widgets for some IT company. You know, yeah, it's a... Return on investment, safe compared to a startup. Right, so that access to capital, I think, ends up being really important. And it's capital in all forms, right? And in all shapes and sizes. And what does that mean? Well... Again, if you're a three-person company, you need $50,000 to fund sort of the experiment. If you're a seed stage company, is that money available there? And if it is, and you kind of prove if your experiment is successful and you get six months in, then you realize, okay, I need sort of a pre-venture round. Is there another stage of investment? Because your, your angel investors, right, that are investing at the beginning, at the seed stage, are not necessarily going to be well-funded enough themselves or want to have, because remember, if you put more money in, you own more of the company. You're concentrating your risk in one place. So you kind of need angels to prepare the companies for other people, right? There's a fund in Japan called the Incubate Fund, and their whole idea is we'll do it first and we'll feed our investments into the next stage of investors. We may or may not make the next, next investment as well with our tag along rights, right? With our right to invest at a pro, on a pro rata basis at the next level. But we do want to build relationships with other investors. And make sure that that next round, if the company is successful enough, can get there. And then are there Series A investors? Which means now that you've proven the experiment, now that you've shown a little bit of growth, Series A, we talked about this almost a year ago now. Series A is meant to fund growth. right? So you almost need sort of a, a contained ecosystem of 
capital available for people. And again, this is going to loop back around and come back to the concept of the government getting out of the way, right? Because how, if I make an investment in a non-listed company and the valuation of that company increases, but I can't buy or sell that company because I can buy it, but I can't sell it because there's no, there's no active liquidity. How am I taxed on that increase in the, in, in that? So in my non-realized capital gains. I mean, this is very technical conversation when it comes to capital, but that's really important, right? In other words, if I buy 100 shares of Apple and it goes from $50 to $100, I've doubled my money, right? But how do I get taxed on those listed capital gains? If I really have to do it, then I can sell my stock and I can pay my taxes. But in the startup world, there's not that level of liquidity. So how? what's the tax treatment, again, for the, your unrealized capital gains? But also... Let's say I'm a startup founder and I have an ESOP, right, an employee stock option plan, and I not gift, but I create KPIs that that the the realization of those KPIs is me giving stock to some of my employees. How does that get taxed before it gets realized? So capital itself doesn't mean just that there's money around to be invested. And you see how that's so mu- it's so much more complicated than just having money around, right? So. Right, and that and that's another problem with these increases in valuations, like I talked about, which is too much risk and too much leverage in a place like Singapore, where the government themselves are allocating a ton of money to invest in startups. Right, because then how do you how do you treat that from a tax perspective? Right, can we go back into that a little bit, not from the tax sure. side, but what you said before, because that, that tax was very interesting and that gets quite technical. But before that was interesting when you talked about the different investors at different stages and we did do a podcast you're right right at the beginning of atp going way back i want to know when we look at all the cities in asia do they you know so for example if you have your angel investors and then your you know your seed round investors you have series a and so on do those develop uniformly so no or would you have a city which says you know they these guys have been around a long time they have a lot of angel investors but they still haven't got their seed a series a act together right does that happen even though you know it's not just a matter of time it like feeds through the pipeline you know like that sort of curve starting off with a lot of angel investors into the institutional investors you know that sort of that sort of pattern appears in every city or, or is it sort of vary by city i'm just curious because i don't really see it on the institutional side obviously you see access to angel investors when we do this tour and talk right. to them, right? But do they sort of develop, well, uniformly or not? How does that work in your view? Well, so my view is this, is that the investment money, the investment capital actually starts in the middle, <laughs> right? And what does that mean? That means that there's probably, and everyone talks about a Series A and a Series B crunch, right? But the reality is that the creation of an angel investor in almost all cases requires an exit of a previous startup. (laughs) Do you you see how that works? In other words, I'm an entrepreneur. I build a company, whether that company is McDonald's or Baskin Robbins or whatever. I sell that company. Now I have capital. But now I understand what it's like to start from scratch. And I am much more likely to become an angel investor if I've made money by building my own company and being an entrepreneur because I can now empathize with and sympathize with a company founder. And I'm willing to... You know, again, if I've made $100 million building a company and selling it, 25 grand, 50 grand to me, I could do 100 of those. Yeah. 
right? Because if only two of them hit, 2%, 3% of them hit, I make another $100 million. And if it doesn't, what have I lost? Five million bucks out of 100 or I've lost 5% of my, of my net worth. It doesn't really matter to me. And even if I lose 10% of my net worth, it doesn't matter. So the thing is, I think most ecosystems start in the middle part of the curve, right? Because if I'm already running an industrial business or I'm already, I've already made a lot of money like trading in the stock market or let's say I'm just the CEO of a multinational corporation in Thailand or in Singapore or whatever and I have access to capital, right? I'm more likely to be a limited partner in a venture capital company, oh. which means that there's a gap because you really have to create that first generation of founders and exits for you to create your first generation of angel investors, right? And that, was, that, that, that feeds into the conversation that we'll have a little bit later is how do you monetize actually into real money, not just on realized capital gains, but into realized capital gains um, after you've built a successful company. But that's my feeling is that you start in the middle of the curve, and even if that's venture capital, you gotta have that, you're going to have that first because that's going to create companies already that can get prepared for an exit. And once the companies start to exit, right, seven years out after your ecosystem starts, well, now you have people that have built companies and exited and those people become your angel investors. And we see that actually in Thailand. But because there aren't that many exits, there aren't that many angels. And the angels right. that exist, an angel investor, like, by definition, is spending their own money. Right? So, like, if you've made a ton of money in the real estate market and you have $25 million, you can allocate, let's say, 3 to $4 million to be an angel investor. But if you're just the wealthy scion, right, of a third generation family, you're not an angel investor because it's not your money. Right. But they, they're still investing like angels, though, are they not? That, not really because they don't understand. Again, right. we get back to that conversation we were having before about risk-taking and failure. Right. So if grandpa starts a company and hands it off to his daughter and then his daughter has children and those children, you know, even if they get allocated money from their parents to invest in things, in the end, it's got to go back to mom or to your aunt, and they get to decide, well, I don't think that's really – if I have $10 million, bucks, I'd rather invest it in my existing thing because I know what the returns are going to be. What it really takes is – and there's a guy in Thailand that does this. There are actually two people that come to mind, right? One of these guys started a snack company, right? So in Japan, you know, nori? Yeah. Seaweed. So the seaweed, the dried seaweed, you put some salt on it, you put some soy on it, you dry it out, you put it in a package, you sell it. So the guy who built one of those businesses here made a ton of money doing that, and he very quietly but very re really goes out and invests in startup companies. Now, he didn't make his money in tech, but he made his money starting from scratch. Yeah, he's a hustler entrepreneur. He is. He's real, and he's also a real angel investor because – he would, he's been doing this always with his own money and his own businesses. And that's how like a real angel investor gets created, right? So if you're a much bigger company, I'm just going to pick one. Like if you're the CP group or the mall group, you're much more likely to take your money and put it into a new fund for Sequoia Capital. Let some professional person manage your money because that's the way all your businesses are run now by professional managers. Mm. You need that to happen too. But that's the whole, that's the, the concept that we talk about when we talk about access to capital. It's not just having money lying around. That money has to be in very specific places and in very specific forms for it to actually have any value or any use for a startup company and for a startup ecosystem. So when you rank it, right, like Singapore, tons of money. It feels like, oh, the best place to have a startup. 
But where are the angel investors in Singapore? Mm. Where are they? So is most of it institutional? Yeah, I mean, almost all the money is institutional. And actually, some of that institutional money, with, look at Vertex Investments, Tomasek, right? GIC. These are all government or quasi-government entities. So you talk about, like, there's so much money sloshing around in Singapore, but if you break it all down, where are the angels? Like I said, the angels are going to come from tech entrepreneurs, um, taking their money and recycling it back into the ecosystem, right? So in the United States, Tony Say has done this, right? Jeff Bezos has done this. Um, you know, even to a certain extent, Bill Gates did this. Mm. Even Steve Jobs went out and funded Next, right? And then funded Pixar, which was essentially a startup. No one thinks about it that way, but that's what it was. And he took the money that he made from Apple, which was a startup back in the 70s, and then funded other companies, which then turned into other billion-dollar entities. Steve Case did the same thing with AOL, right? He went out and built a gigantic company with America Online and then took that money, went around, and then um, reinvested it, okay? That's where the angel investors come from. It's really important to build that ecosystem, and that takes time. Yeah? Okay. Cool. Well, capital, I think we've covered the basis on that other criteria that we need to cover I'm, I'm conscious of the time we haven't talked about lifestyle yet that's kind of a big factor isn't it as which doesn't often get mentioned when we talk about startups and especially you know places when it comes to startups. good great places for startups often it focuses purely on capital and talent right yeah what about yeah, lifestyle? We, we didn't talk about talent but we did a little bit in the context of business oh, yeah. but lifestyle lifestyle i I don't know. I mean, what do you think? What does that mean, lifestyle? Right. What does, what does it mean? It mean? Well, I'm thinking only in the context of when we were in Fukuoka the other day. And especially, you know, you contrast that to Shanghai as well. Like, Shanghai would win hands down if you were in any shape or form, uh, you know, trying to sell to a market of, you know, consumers, right? Sure. Because it just has, you know, it has more people. It's 21 million people. It has access to, you know, there's far more businesses there, far more startups there, far more capital there, right? So why would anybody ever choose Fukuoka? And it's the same maybe for somewhere like Thailand when you start getting out of Bangkok and you start looking at places like Chiang Mai, right? Which is popular for a whole bunch of, a different set of entrepreneurs, which we haven't really talked about yet. But I, I just think, you know, that... Lifestyle is something, and I think it's certainly something for entrepreneurs who who don't necessarily want the the uh, you know the standard I suppose standard narrative of what a startup's about, right? You know, yeah, I mean, it, it depends, though, right? In other words, if you talk to your most successful startup founders, right? So even when we were in Fukuoka, right? One of the most consistent things that the people said there to us, whether it was the Japanese people that were there or the foreigners were there, is that living in Fukuoka is really great. And, you know, we're 15 minutes from the beach and we're 20 minutes from the mountains. And we, But the reality is, I think, is that, you know, you don't have time to go to the beach. Like, what do you do at the beach? You're sitting around and just like having a margarita and having a – like, I just don't think that that happens a lot. It's nice. I think it's one of those aspirational things where, like, when you can't, they're intangibles, right, in every city. And I think if you want to talk about um, lifestyle, maybe those intangibles are more important. Just the fact that you think 
if I ever have a free moment, I can run to the beach if I want to. But I don't see a lot of startup founders. And I don't think, like, think about it. Jeff Bezos lives in Seattle or outside Seattle, right? It's got to be really close to Vancouver. You know, I'm American, so my knowledge of geography is not that great. But I don't think he was skiing every weekend. Because mm. I think his head was, his nose was to the grindstone, right? But he, he's not every startup founder, though, right? I'm just curious. No, I mean, be curious to see what people think. I mean, they can they can tweet us, right? Tweet us at yeah. hashtag or sorry, tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. What do you think is lifestyle important? You know, I know what you're I know what you're saying, Michael. And you know, I don't think you have any spare hours in your day. You know, and I think that most startup founders are the same, right? They're just so busy. But there's something there. Yeah, I, I mean, don't know. I mean, there must about be a normal day. Yeah, there must be some. There must be something. I'm sure. I'm sure these startup founders aren't, ain't working 120 hour weeks, right? Some are, but some aren't. That's the point. The ones that aren't, maybe, have spare time. Thinking, what do I do with my spare time, right? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is one of those places, like, you know, we when you and I were talking about delivery. Like, I want. I want a person right. to deliver my pizza and you didn't care. I think this is going to be one of those things where it like, is. We don't agree. it really is. And, and, and maybe you're, you're better at that than I am. And that's, that, that could be very true, but well, maybe there's, there's different type of founders, but there's a, there's the type of founder, like you say, like, why the hell are you thinking about going to the beach? Because you've got to be building this thing, right? Maybe there's another type of founder who isn't manically busy all the time and does have time off. I don't know. I'd be curious to know. Yeah, I'd be super curious to know, right? Like, how do you manage your time and how do you make sure that there's balance, right? People talk a lot about creating balance in your life and having a lifestyle balance. And, and to a certain extent, I do think it's really important. But I think if people really, really genuinely love what they do, they don't think they need time off. Yeah, that's true. But like, I look at my schedule for today and, of course, you know, I'm not, I'm not like normal, right? But... I think I'm close to being normal. So let's just look, you know, what was my schedule like today? Well, I was on the phone this morning, you know, with you at like eight o'clock in the morning. Right. And then I did a whole bunch of catch up work. And then at 10 o'clock we got back on the phone Then I had a meeting at one and meeting at two. I interviewed somebody at four and then I did some more between five o'clock. And when you and I got on the phone at seven, I did some more mail, but that was, that was a joy for me. It really was because I was connecting people. I was talking about ICOs. I was helping people raise money, like all this kind of stuff. I was editing people's documents that made me happy, mm. right? And the reality is that in between, sure, I loved the fact that I got to ride my scooter in the sun. I mean that. Like I mean that deeply, but I wasn't at the beach. Right. I, I don't know, but I do. But I do think it's important to get other people's perspectives on this, right? 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 Because well, maybe we know, for you know, maybe for those angel investors, it's important, right? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Because even though if you have you had an exit behind you, you got some cash, and you decide, and we've seen this, right? We saw that with that couple, Stephen Liu and his wife. I was right? just going to say Stephen and Stephen and Devin, right? Like they yeah. said that to us. We love living in Fukuoka because this, that, and the other thing, right? Right. And they'd moved from Singapore, right? So that was interesting. So there you go. That's lifestyle. That's a win for lifestyle, not the startup side of things. But I suppose you've got to have that whole package. Ranking the cities is not just about for the startups, isn't it? It's for everybody in the stake, you know, every stakeholder in that ecosystem. Right. So that's a great point, and that is. Do you want to live if you're a, if you're an angel investor, right? And this is a great example. So, right, so Stephen and, and Devin are a great example of this. 
Do you want to live in Singapore where your competition for your with the competition for your money and your ability to see deal flow is so big because you're an angel as opposed to an institutional investor where the government has built a system where being institutional is actually better than being an angel? Or do you want to go to Fukuoka where your capital and your ability to mentor people and advise people is so much more important and so much more relevant and so much more necessary and that you can actually then be there at the beginning and help build that ecosystem. Right? That's the lifestyle part, I think, and that's actually really important. And that's the part I was missing and that you that you got that I didn't get. And that's actually really important. Okay, lifestyle. What else? We missed out. Talent, do you want to – have we got time to talk about talent? Yeah, we've, yeah, we definitely have time to talk about talent. So talent as well gets back to some of these policies we were talking a little bit earlier about immigration, right? So if you don't have the ta- talent that's there naturally – how do you create it through the education system or just through educated education programs, whether it's you know, offline or online learning about how to write software, how to build the business, how to manage you know, people? How do you educate people to be prepared to run a startup company? And also, do you have mentors around you to help foster that talent and make that talent better? And then third of all, can you get that talent into the country if it doesn't exist locally? Right? That's, also, that's really important. Yeah. Okay, and it's a pretty quick it's a pretty quick cut on it, but having the talent in the right place is important. And that's one of the reasons why a place like Fukuoka goes out of its way, and a place like Thailand goes out of its way to say we're still in the process of developing our talents. They do two things, right? They make it accessible for people to come into the country so that they can then teach others how to be all those things, and then in the at the same time they build around the ecosystem a way to educate people how to, like I said, how to program, how to manage, how to raise capital, how to invest, how to list things on a stock exchange, all those things that matter as well. And then over time, and I don't think it's more than, you know, a five or 10 year period of time where the locals get educated. And it's not just saying that the locals don't understand, but it's in any locality, right? Again, if you'd gone to Silicon Valley 15 years ago and said, show me some angel investors, they didn't exist. Mm. So it's the same thing everywhere in the world, right? But you need that. You need the availability of talent at all levels to be able to do that, right? We, we, that was one of the things we talked about when we were in Fukuoka is those two things, right? How do you get the talent and how do you get the capital to invest in, in these businesses? Because even if the startup founders are there, how do you get those things together? And I would say the final thing we need to talk about, and we can talk more about this later, is how do you exit? Right. So how do you take all these unrealized gains and turn them into realized gains right? so that then you can take that money and reinvest it back in the ecosystem? Because you know the one thing that rarely ever happens, and I'd love for people to argue with me about this as well, is you, know, you start a company, you're, you're a tech startup founder, or even if you're a dating company founder. You build that company up, it does $10, $20 million of revenue, sells for five times revs, $50, $100 million, and then you just like go off the grid, you know, go to Bali or go to some island and just disappear with your money. It's almost unheard of, right? Hmm. right so I know plenty of founders in the world, you know, not just in Thailand and not just in Southeast Asia, but globally, who've said, sure, all I really want to do is build this thing, exit, and then just start reinvesting all of that money so that other people can benefit from it. Right? I think one of the things that founders really want to do is sort of pay it forward and help other people build businesses as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that ability to exit, whether it's an IPO, a trade sale, 
mergers and acquisitions, secondary sales, um, partnerships, roll-ups, whatever it is, having the ability to create tangible, spendable value, I think, is one of the final pieces of a puzzle that needs to go into um, whether a place is a great place to build a startup and, and run a startup. Because if you can't exit at some level, right, you're never building it to exit, right? So look at um, a company like Uber. How long has it been around? It's still a private company. But there is a way at some point if those people want to monetize that or take some money out for them to, for them to take some of that money out. Mm. Is that going to vary okay. by city? Well, it's going to vary by country for sure. But the country is going to – I mean the city is going to – it's going to vary by city because it's going to because the country itself where that city is is, is wow. going to um, it's going to matter. But think about this too: if you're in Fukuoka, you don't necessarily have access to the same exit ability that you would have in Tokyo because there's no Fukuoka Stock Exchange, and even if there is, it's small. But that would mean that you'd have to then go to Tokyo, understand the IPO process, whether it's on the secondary exchange like Mothers or on the TSE one, which is the, where Topics is, right? So you have to be able to do that. And so, yeah, it does matter by city, right? Okay. So all of those things are going to be city and then country um, specific for sure, right? And again, depending on how well advanced the stock market is in your city, but also just the business climate in your city, right? If you build a business in Chicago, even in the United States or in, you know, South Carolina, your exit ability is going to be very different than your ability to do that in Los Angeles or in San Francisco or New York because the people that invested in your business are going to be a different type of person than the investors are going to be in San Francisco. And they may not push you. They may not care, right? And particularly if you're not being funded by a VC. Like one of the reasons you see a lot of these companies go public or have a trade sale and even if the founders don't want to do it, the venture capitalists want to do it, particularly if you're coming up to five or seven years. Why is that? Well, the reason why is because most of their funds have a five or seven year life life um lifespan, and if they can exit, that actually adds to their advertisable returns and allows them to then go out and raise more money. So yeah, that does matter actually. Fantastic. Is there anything that we've missed out from the list? Please tweet us at. At sorry, not hashtag at Asia Tech Pod. Let us know. You can hit us up on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Asia Tech Podcast. If you are listening to this from being a newsletter subscriber, just hit reply on your newsletter. We will pick up every reply in our inbox and get back to you. Be great to hear what you think, your experience, and what you think makes a great startup city. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go and visit these startup cities and give them our scorecard, rank them on these criteria. It's work in progress and something as well that you can be involved in if you have any ideas or you have been involved in a similar project you have a project which complements what we're doing in trying to build professionalize the ecosystem in asia then please get on board at asia tech podcast all the other ways that i've mentioned to you as well michael what's next so what's next for me one thing is um itunes please leave us a rating on itunes it's the best way to help us out um and again, tweet us and let us know whether it's at Asia Tech Pod on the Facebook page at Michael Waits to Graham Brown and let us know what you think and let us know if you have any questions, Graham. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.